In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. A focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen. And today we're talking to Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. She's the author of a new book called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad, which is quite a kind of shocking, surprising title for anyone who lives with anxiety, who I'm sure like me probably immediately goes, what are you on about? Anxiety is obviously awful. <laughs> but it's a really interesting chat with Tracy because she explains that, you know, there's a difference between healthy anxiety and anxiety disorder, but also kind of breaks down how the way we're viewing anxiety is maybe not the best way of approaching it and how it can actually be a positive thing. So I've conducted grant funded research for the past 20 years really focusing on emotional health, um, anxiety, anxiety disorders, and their treatment. And um, one, I guess, fun fact, or maybe not so fun, is when I actually officially became a psychologist, uh, that's when I defended my dissertation. It was on September 11th, 2001. So it was on, yes, on actual 9-11. And so, of course, coming into this field at a time when mental health was so top of mind for all of us was really quite remarkable because it it was, uh, you know, just really confirmation for for me that I was in a good field to be in uh, at the time and that I had an opportunity to contribute. So as a researcher and a clinical uh, researcher at that, I really put my head down for 20 years <laughs> and and did the work. And, and it was only when I looked up again a few years ago, maybe five, six years ago. And I thought, okay, well, we have 
great science. I've been part of that uh, success, so I thought. We have wonderful uh, gold standard treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy. We have some great medications that can be used to help people benefit from therapy. And we have science-based wellness practices. So we have these solutions, but mental health disorders, in particular anxiety disorders, are still on the rise. So I really wrote the book out of a sense of failure, frustration, and, and wanting to understand this mystery of why we have all these great solutions, but they're not working. So the big question is, what's the answer? Where are we going wrong? Why, why is it that we're still in this situation where, you know, as you say, anxiety is so common, it's so prevalent, and it should be that we're at this point where we've done all this brilliant research and all this great work, we should be better. Why aren't we? The premise of Future Tense, my book, is, is what I've, I've really come to believe and really use science and, and lived experience and, and really drawing from all sorts of sources to understand. I believe the problem isn't that we have too much anxiety right now because we feel as if we're living in an overwhelming age of anxiety. I think the problem and why all these solutions aren't working is that our view of anxiety and even more broadly of mental health is setting us up for failure. That and I'll focus in on anxiety because I think it is the crisis right now that we face uh, above all the other mental health problems. The, the reason that our view of anxiety is setting us up for failure is that it's actually our beliefs are blocking us from learning how to feel anxious in the right way. Uh, it blocks us from putting anxiety to good use and it blocks us from benefiting from the great treatments that are out there when we do need therapy because we might have debilitating anxiety or an anxiety disorder. So, so in Future Tense, the book, I show why we actually need this difficult emotion anxiety, why it's a feature of being human. It's not a bug. It's not a mistake or a malfunction. I talk about where I believe we went wrong over history as well as just the past handful of decades and how we can create a paradigm shift in our view of anxiety so that we can actually put it to better use um, benefit from treatments when we need them, and actually even use it as a as the advantage that it evolved to be. You said that um, in your book that anxiety is a triumph of human evolution, and you said there um, that we can put anxiety to good use. Can you expand a bit more on that um, and the, the sort of positive sides of it? Yeah, I, I, anxiety is a triumph of evolution, but to make that statement, it's really important to distinguish anxiety from an anxiety disorder. Uh, so diagnosed when people are having intense and frequent experiences of anxiety, but they also need to have something else happening in their lives. They need to be coping with those ex experiences of anxiety in ways that actually are preventing them from living the life they want. So for example, we can be highly socially anxious. We can fear the judgment of others. We can be uncomfortable with giving public speeches or giving podcast interviews. All of those anxieties we can feel and we can feel them intensely, but we would never be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the way we cope with those experiences of anxiety stop us from going to work, connecting with our friends and loved ones, doing those podcast interviews. So those ways of coping that tend to get us in trouble with anxiety are things that cause us to suppress all experiences of anxiety, avoid them, fear them, and start to lose opportunities to learn to, to manage anxiety in, in ways that 
that make anxiety a part of our lives instead of just a constant burden. So that's the crisis right now that we have of, of, of not so much that we have too much anxiety, it's that the ways we're coping with anxiety are getting in our way. So having made that distinction between anxiety and an anxiety disorder, when I say anxiety is a triumph of human ev evolution, I mean that the emotion of anxiety, the day-to-day -day experiences we have, have actually evolved to be helpful to us. And there's two ways of thinking about this. First is that anxiety is, is, is not a light switch that you have it or you don't. It's actually a spectrum of experiences that everyone has. Um, there's no anxiety-free life that's possible. We, we have, you know, anxiety is part and parcel of the messy work of being human. So it's there. It's not going anywhere. But anxiety also is experienced along the spectrum. Everything from just nerves, a, a little bit of nervousness and excitement, all the way over to full-blown panic. That's the full spectrum of what anxiety means. The other part of anxiety, when we start thinking of it as a spectrum, is that it's very distinct from fear. We often think of anxiety, oh, it's just this, this uh, emotion that kind of protects us because it makes us go into fight-flight mode, just like fear. But anxiety is not the same as fear. Fear is the reaction we have when we face present danger. It's certain and it's present and it's in the moment. It's like someone holding a knife to our throat. And it does prepare us to act. It prepares us with a fight-flight response or freezing. So it, it has that uh, aspect to it. Anxiety, in contrast, has nothing to do with the present. It's not about a clear and present danger. Anxiety is about future uncertainty. It's that we're looking around the bend and there's something bad that could happen. So um, we have a job interview coming up and we could really get nervous and mess up that job interview. And we're anxious about that. But the thing about anxiety is it also tells us that something good could happen. We're nervous about that job interview because we're excited about that job. We think this could be the job of our dreams and we could really nail that job interview. We could do really well. So anxiety is the emotion that prepares us and activates us to imagine that uncertain future. And that's a triumph of human evolution because only humans can imagine the future so vividly and prepare for it. It helps us imagine the future, prepare for it, avert that potentially negative thing, and work hard to make the positive possibility into a reality. I think you're right to say that, you know, a lot of us resist anxiety because it's not, a, you know, it's not a fun thing to feel. It feels really unpleasant. So how can we start to reframe it and start to accept it as, you know, not a fun thing, but a necessary or even a positive thing. You're so right. Anxiety, it just feels bad. And so you tell someone, you write a, you write a book yeah. like mine that says anxiety. It's about future tense. <laughs> Why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. And everyone, you know, a lot of people say, wait a second, anything that feels this bad must be bad for me. But anxiety has to feel bad to do its job. Because the bad feeling that anxiety gives us makes us sit up and pay attention it tells us that we care about something happening in the world. So we take anxiety because it feels bad as a signal to panic that there's something wrong, but actually it's a signal that there's something to care about in the world. It's like a smoke alarm going off. And if we just ignored the smoke alarm because it was unpleasant and loud, we'd be, we'd be really losing an opportunity to see, wait a second, it's giving us this important information that something really crucial and important might be going on in the world around us. And in this case, it's something being on fire. But anxiety also signals um, things we care about. You, you know, my son who's 13 came to me the other day and he was talking about how anxious he felt about an upcoming test. 
And he said to me, you know, being a 13 year old, he said, Hey, you're supposed to be the expert on this. What, what am I supposed to do about that? You know, you know, and I said, well, um, so you're worried about the test. Um, so I guess you really care about doing well on that test. He said, yeah, I actually really love math class and I, I want to do well. And, and, and I said, so maybe what it's, what that anxiety and that worry is telling you is that you might need to study a little bit more. What do you think? Do you feel prepared? He said, well, actually I could stand to study another five or 10 minutes. <laughs> so he went and he studied five or 10 minutes and that bad feeling of anxiety and worry, it actually started to dissipate. So he listened not only to his, the bad, worrisome, apprehensive feeling, but then he listened to the fact that it started to decrease, to go down. He felt better. That was also information that he was on the right track. Maybe he actually did need to study a little more. So by thinking about that bad feeling, not as a malfunction, which makes us just want to avoid it and suppress it and fix it, uh, not as a, you know, so not as a failure of mental health. Oh, I'm anxious. There must be something wrong with me. And not as a potential disease or disaster, which makes us, again, just want to eradicate all of those feelings. Instead, when we listen to anxiety as information, we start to do many more of the right helpful things when it comes to anxiety, actively coping, uh, trying to see if there's anything important that it's telling us, and many fewer of the unhelpful things like avoiding and suppressing and um, you know, kind of um, ignoring anxiety, which always, always, always tends to spiral anxiety even more, um, you know, into a more intense level. What about, because I know kind of at the beginning of this chat, we were talking about the difference between, you know, anxiety and anxiety disorders. So this is partly a self-interested question because I do have OCD, but with um, OCD and those kind of chronic disorders, what's the how does it become different from, because it's, I'm explaining this in a really awful way, um, in terms of, so there's anxiety that's helpful and it's telling you helpful information. But I think with me, from my experience of OCD, at least, a lot of the anxiety is not helpful. It's um, kind of completely illogical worries about things that shouldn't be worrying or shouldn't be causing those kind of things. So what is it that causes that switch from, okay, normal, healthy, helpful anxiety to this actually is something unhealthy? And what can you do about it in that case? There is, and, you know, I, I want to say that, uh, thank you for sharing that experience. And I think it's really crucial to talk about anxiety as distinct from anxiety disorders, but to also see that there's a bridge and so, and a lot of, you know, they're, they're, I've spoken with people who suffer from debilitating anxiety and we have this conversation and they say, you know, you're, you're saying anxiety is this triumph of human evolution. That's just the opposite of what I've experienced as someone with an anxiety disorder, because it's really not helpful, um, rational logic, you know, you know, kind of informational anxiety. So how can you say this? It just makes me feel like I'm doing everything wrong. And the thing I really want to say to people about that is you are 100% right to say that that day-to-day -day healthy anxiety is very different than the kind of painful anxiety that we experience when we suffer from an anxiety disorder. At the same time, when we shift our perspective about anxiety broadly as this human experience that we all share, we start to do a couple things that can help us, even with debilitating anxiety. The first thing is that we start to learn to tell the difference between helpful anxiety and un unhelpful anxiety. 
So I'm sure that, that you, like other people who suffer from OCD, there are times that anxiety does actually give uh, a person helpful information. So, you know, a person who is suffering from OCD will um, feel, you know, will have obsessions and worries and anxieties that really catch them and that they're stuck in. But they'll also have worries and anxieties about things that they care about in the world um, that have nothing to do with OCD. And so when we think of anxiety as not all bad, we start to be able to tune in more and learn and really as a skill, start to learn the difference. So that's one thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is that as you uh, probably know, the gold standard approach to helping um, reduce the suffering of OCD and to, um, and to even remediate it is to disrupt this vicious cycle of, um, of the obsessions and the compulsions. And the obsessions are causing this overwhelming anxiety and the compulsions are temporarily relieving them, but really only serve to kind of avoid right? Those, those feelings, but then they come roaring back stronger than ever. So that's why exposure and response prevention is one of the best, most effective treatments for OCD, because you're exposing yourself to those painful experiences of anxiety, those obsessions, and don't avoid them. The, the, res, the response prevention is don't avoid, don't escape, don't do the compulsions or rituals that help you alleviate that anxiety in the moment. And to slowly build tolerance for that and learn other skills that allow you to cope with that anxiety. So to say and to view anxiety as a helpful emotion, I believe also helps people go through the significant struggle of doing something hard like therapy and really learning a new set of skills to, um, to little by little overcome that vicious cycle uh, in OCD of, of, of obsessions and compulsions, but in any anxiety disorder, it's that vicious cycle of, of, of anxiety and avoidance that tends to drive them. So I think this perspective, not meant to underestimate the suffering that anxiety disorders cause, but can help us get in the right mindset, a helpful mindset to benefit the most from all sorts of therapies that we might be uh, partaking in. And I think also that it's helpful for everyone to, you know, accept the idea of maybe instead of immediately rushing to kind of unhealthy coping mechanisms for anxiety it's just kind of sit with it and allow yourself to feel that feeling do you have any like kind of practical advice on how we start to do that how do we start to just kind of go okay I can feel anxious for a bit and that's okay I think one thing that helps is to know that feeling anxiety does not damage us I think there's widespread belief that anxiety is toxic, um, that it causes, you know, that it's sort of, uh, you can equate it with toxic stress that damages our body. And it's just not true. Anxiety does um, trigger the fight flight response in some, in, in some, if not many, many cases, but it also does a whole series of other biological things that if we remember this, when we're sort of facing our anxiety, I think it helps us feel a little safer to do so. And, and so um, anxiety um, actually uh, triggers a whole set of biological responses that we never think of as being part of anxiety. One, it triggers uh, the social bonding hormone, oxytocin, which primes us to seek out social support and social connection. And that's one of the best ways we have, actually, to cope with anxiety and stress and all those feelings that um, in a moment might feel very overwhelming. So anxiety sort of contains within itself this, um, this motivation to seek out a, a good solution. Anxiety also increases levels of the feel-good neurotransmitter dopamine in our brain. 
And what that means, now we think of dopamine as being sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or we think about it as in a less helpful way being as like driving addiction. But it really is, it does so much more than that. And it it actually is necessary for all these very positive things in our life. When we have increased dopamine in our brain, we are actually preparing to pursue goals in a more coordinated and effective way. Dopamine is this little messenger, as all neurotransmitters are, that shuttle information among different areas of the brain. So what um, dopamine does is it helps coordinate all the different areas of the brain we need to motivate, to focus, and to work hard to pursue positive goals. So, And then when we start moving towards those goals and start succeeding, the levels of dopamine decrease which means that we actually have the signal that we're um, successfully meeting those goals. So anxiety actually activates that goal-directed system and it helps us persist and it helps us be more innovative and creative. And there's very interesting and exciting studies that show that that, that, you know, not when we're in a full-blown panic or when we suffer from debilitating anxiety in that moment, but moderate and well-regulated levels of anxiety actually help us make, you know, to put it in a sort of cheesy way, help our dreams come true. And, and anxiety evolved to do that. So, so when I think we, we have our anxious moment and, and we're ready to face it and we really don't want to face it because it really stinks, it really feels terrible, no one likes anxiety, but we can remember that there are these potential benefits and it's not going to harm us. I think that's one step to being better able to um, experience and, and work through anxiety rather than around it. It is quite amazing as well, um, the way that you sort of, I've heard you talk before about um, the way that anxiety is this unique thing that humans have, where you can basically project into the future. And I suppose the most obvious way to describe it would be, I'm sure you've all had these kind of situations where we'll have like whole conversations, maybe we're worried about something at work, we'll have these whole conversations with our boss in our heads before it's happened. But it can it, you, you can kind of see there how it can be useful, because it, you you can sort of at the time when you're doing it, you can feel like, oh, well, why am I doing this? But, you know, I suppose it does run you through those scenarios and maybe help you avoid certain things or maybe help you avoid the conversation as a whole. That, that's right. And, and But that takes practice because as we all know, and we've all been there, it can also go off the tracks. So, so what we often do is we'll say, well, it can sometimes be helpful, but then I start spiraling in my head and it just is, most of the time it's not helpful. So I'm just going to try to avoid it. But but that's because we think of anxiety as a disease to fix or, or be eradicated. If instead we thought of it like we do physical fitness or, you know, or as muscles, <laughs> you know, as, as skills to actually build, we'd start to think, well, wait a second, you know, maybe if I don't practice anxiety, it will tend to get the better of me. If I don't actually own it as a part of me, I won't gain the skills and experience to know when I can use it to, you know, uh, sort of suss out those scenarios of the future. And when I need, when I learn that it's actually not so useful to me, and then I can draw on things that I know help me to learn to let go when I need to. And that's the trick with anxiety, because it does send us into the future tense. And, you know, really the reason I, I wrote, I called the book Future Tense. And, and in the future, we can worry, but we can also hope. I had someone say to me the other day when I, I talked about how, you know, the, the triumph of evolution of thinking that when we're anxious, we are holding in our mind at the same time, the possibility of something going wrong, but also the hope that something will go well. And she said, oh gosh, I, I've always thought of myself as an anxious person, someone who struggles with anxiety, but maybe I'm a person 
who struggles with hope, with that future uncertainty. And, and when you think about it that way, you can say, okay, I need to, you know, I can know that sometimes I can be in the future in a productive way and know that I care about and can hope for the future and work towards it and persist. But other times I need to leave the future tense. It's, it's too much for me right now. It's, it's too difficult a problem. I need to know when to let it go and to immerse myself back in the present. And so I think about it as sort of this time traveling capacity we have that we can be in the future tense, but we also can let go and do all those things that we know are really powerful and, and, and healthy and, and nourishing things that we do when we, uh, when we immerse ourselves in the present moment. Things like exercising, things like mindfulness, if you're someone who likes meditation, um, things like, you know, speaking with a friend or a therapist and really going over what your experience is right now in the moment and trying to let go of those worries so that you can sort of gain your equilibrium again. Um, when I want to be in the present moment, I love to write poetry because it sort of gets me thinking in a completely different light. Um, I write very bad poetry most of the time, but, but I still, but it's sort of, but you know, as I let go of this future tense, I also let go of all that sort of any perfectionistic tendencies I have and say, you know what, right now, I'm just going to immerse myself in this experience. So learning to ride the emotion of anxiety like we do a wave, you know, building skills in swimming, knowing that, yes, we can drown sometimes, but we can also ride this emotion forward. We can learn to swim. We can learn to surf. We can, we can you know, thinking of it that way instead of a disease that needs to be eradicated, it will just help us do more of the right things and helpful things and fewer of the unhelpful things that can get us in trouble with anxiety. I'm going to ask you a personal question now, which is that I think as a kind of expert and you've written this book, I imagine that sometimes you still get anxious. Are you able to draw on your kind of professional expertise or do you ever find yourself going like, no, fuck it, I was wrong, actually, this is shit and awful? <laughs> well, I, it's funny because um, I, so, so I definitely, over the course of writing this book, and I wrote this book during the pandemic, actually. Um, and then um, I had to throw the whole thing out and start again because uh, the, the, powers, the powers that be were not happy with what I did on my, <laughs> and I had to, and I actually um, found a great editor and I work very, his name is Bill Tonelli. He's this amazing editor that really helped me find my voice. And, but I, I can remember so many moments over the course of writing this book, including writing this book, that caused me a really powerful anxiety. I tell this story um, in the book also of a moment when my husband was going through a really, really a difficult period in, in his work. And it was very anxiety provoking for me, not just because it affected my husband and, um, and really affected his livelihood and our lives, but was out of my control and was so uncertain. And those are recipes, right, for intense anxiety. And all of us had ha have had more than our fair share of that over the course of the pandemic. So, you know, I'm going through these things. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I've written the book on anxiety. <laughs> How much is this? Is this really? And what I found is that I had some really bad days when anxiety really got the better of me. This book is not telling people that the, my intention behind this book is not to say, ah, just shift your mindset and anxiety is going to be a cakewalk. Really, it's the opposite of that. But when I applied what I was trying to, to share in this book to myself, I found a couple things. One is that I had a lot more compassion for myself about just the messy work of being human. And then anxiety, it's not our enemy in that. It's actually an ally, but one that needs to be negotiated with. 
Um, one that constantly is, depending on what our lives are throwing at us right, right, you know, at the moment, need to be negotiated with. But that when we do negotiate and accept anxiety as part and parcel of being human, it reveals beautiful things to us. It makes us accept ourselves more. And it motivates us to understand more about what we care about in the world. So I really found that even in the toughest moment, like with my, my husband, what he was going through, I, I, I did things that didn't really help my anxiety in the moment, but it, but it drove me to be a better support to him. You know, I, I really valued, I knew that when I wanted to cope with my anxiety, maybe I couldn't control the world around me, but I could, I could hitch my anxiety to a sense of purpose and do a sense of what meant, gave my life meaning. And at that moment, you know, being a really good partner to my husband, the best I could be really meant something to me. It gave me a sense of purpose and maybe control. And I could just listen better than I would normally listen when I was, you know, sometimes I default to trying to fix things, but that's, that's really not what people need a lot of the time. So I really was a better listener when I hitched my anxiety to a sense of purpose. I also um, kind of immersed myself more in something that I really valued about my life, which is being a writer. So I wrote about what I was going through. And it actually spurned on this whole new creative stage of my writing because I felt so helpless. Um, and I wanted to do something with that energy, that energy of, of, of anxiety. And so it actually led to some really exciting explorations in my own personal um, writing and self-awareness that, that was helpful in the end. So, yeah, I mean, yes, it's sort of sometimes what I talk about in this book, I felt like it failed me on some levels, but but really it helped me feel like I was a fuller, kind of more complete human being because I didn't have to work all the time. I didn't have to win at anxiety all the time. I failed, but then I felt like I could pick myself back up. I think my final question would be, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that you came to this book kind of feeling a bit disillusioned almost with the way that we're treating anxiety and the way that we're treating mental health conditions in general. How do you feel after writing this, do you feel more hopeful or are there things that you still think, you know, we're not nailing this and there are things that we need to be doing differently? I think this disease narrative of anxiety is a very stubborn one. And I believe more than ever that it's doing more harm than good. So as I'm getting the wonderful opportunity to speak with people about the ideas in the book, to hear feedback, to kind of, to, to have dialogue about it. I, I feel that there's going to be a need for many, many more conversations because we've mistaken more conversations about mental health and more awareness about mental health as always a good thing. But I think we can have the wrong conversations about mental health as well. So um, I, I think that, I think that we've started to take um, the view that mental health equals the absence of emotional discomfort. And we've started to treat the um, ability to avoid emotional discomfort as a human right. And I think that's a mistake. And I see how deeply, and it's all from the best intentions in most cases, where people, we don't want people to suffer. You know, those of us who are parents like myself, we want to, uh, you know, eradicate anxiety in our kids' lives because we don't want them to suffer. And it's very, and, and, and so that's a deeply entrenched feeling and idea and belief. So, but yet I believe also at the same time that, that the things we do when we just try to prevent everyone from feeling uncomfortable feelings is setting us up for failure, is, is keeping us from learning the skills to live well. Because the only way to know how to feel good is also to know how to feel the bad emotions, the unpleasant emotions. 
So I think that these are very deeply entrenched beliefs. Um, they're well-intentioned for the most part. And I think it's going to take a lot of new conversations and challenging conversations to rethink some of that. And, and so I do still, I feel challenged, <laughs> but not discouraged because I guess I, I am an optimist. And, and when I feel anxious, I also feel hopeful. <laughs> so that's how I, that's sort of where I stand now with, with uh, what, what I hope to, uh, to, to move into the future with this book and these ideas and these conversations. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 